Thank you, brother. I honestly don't know how to start off after that kind of introduction. Um, it's funny because I think as a kid, I learned things the hard way. And perhaps that's how you get wisdom. But when we were looking at the uh, study of Proverbs uh, this summer, uh, the Lord led me to a proverb that uh, was important to Margaret and I, especially at the time of our, our, our marriage and our wedding, and um, certainly it's still uh, very important to us today. Uh, and, and that's what we're going to share with you. But uh, from this whole idea and concept of getting wisdom, just to let you know how non-filled with wisdom I am, uh, I actually went this past week to Google to find out what the definition of wisdom is and what it looks like. Uh, again, a lesson you can learn of what not to do when you're looking up something like wisdom. I, you know, most of the things that I got were some type of list, some type of like business advice about gathering information, filtering that information with the knowledge of your personal circumstances, and keep on applying that knowledge until it becomes common sense. I don't think so. Uh, uh, there's Elon Musk quotes, there's Aristotle quotes, but finally got to some quotes that I appreciated, and this is going to date myself a little bit with some of these, but uh, the first one is from a guy named Will Rogers. Do y'all know who Will Rogers was? Okay, there's, there's some yeses in the front. Okay, all right, all right. Front row, all right. Um, Will Rogers said, good judgment comes from experience, and a lot of that comes from bad judgment. <laughs> that, 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 that'll preach. Uh, one of my favorites that I saw comes from Sam Clemens. You guys know who Sam Clemens is? You ever heard of Mark Twain? Okay, tie that together. That's one person, Sam Clemens. He said this, it's better to keep your mouth closed and let people think that you are full than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> so let's pray. We're well, done. <laughs> Oh, man, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to be up here and, and to be able to share with you uh, this, this verse uh, or these verses from, from Proverbs. I'm, uh, I'm going to take the four components of, the, of this verse or these verses, and I'm going to give us six examples to talk about. And I, I've chosen six biblical examples because I think that when we're talking about wisdom, not to confuse it with anything we're going to read on the Internet, but wisdom for us comes from God, and it's God's Word. So let's look at some biblical examples of what this thing called wisdom is, and let's base it off of a great little couplet, a great piece of poetry written by a guy named Solomon. So we're going to look at today, trust in the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And do not lean on your understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. You know, what we're going to do is we're going to look at coming up with a better understanding, hopefully, by, by benchmarking these 
people from the Old Testament and New Testament and trusting the Lord with all our heart. Hopefully, we can be better at avoiding leaning on our own pride, on our own understanding, and truly acknowledging Him in all that we do. Now, that's what I call living the good life. And that's our big idea today. We're going to start looking at Solomon's example. And y'all have to forgive me. I, uh, about two weeks ago, I lost my Bible. I, I misplaced it. I actually left it here. Um, but I, I didn't know where it was. And, and so I was like, I started thinking about it. And I was like, okay, if somebody finds my Bible and they're here, what are they going to see when they get in it? And one of the places that I, I once I, uh, Clayton helped me find it, and I think Billy might have actually found it, but Clayton sent me a picture of it. I was like, yeah, that's it. Um, I, I started looking in some of the books in the Old Testament. And um, guys, there's a lot of white pages in there. There's a lot of areas that I hadn't studied a whole lot. Now, I've only had the Bible for five, five years, but uh, there's obvious areas that I go to a whole lot that are marked up so many different times. You wonder what color that was and what it went with. Uh, a lot of things in the margin. But then there are sections of the Bible that are like, oh, that was white. Okay. Um, and I wanted to dig into, and when I'm looking at, at Solomon's life, I'm, I'm digging into some uh, where his story is told in 1 in, uh, Kings. And I'm like, man, these pages are white. So... For your best interest and for mine, I, I, I'm putting it out there, and I thought that we would all read Solomon's story uh, together. I think that when we hear about Solomon, other than his writing of the, of the book of Proverbs, we hear about him in later in his life, and we, we come away perhaps with a, a, a site that's, that's not as solid a, a benchmark uh, for us as, as we see early on. So I wanted to go to 1 Kings 3, 1 through 15. And I want to just ask you to imagine yourself being given such an opportunity from the one true God who could and can deliver on whatever you request and more. If you could ask God for anything, what would you ask God for? Well, you can. We'll talk more about that later, but let's read Solomon's experience around this. Starting in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. It's a great place to start. He was walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places, so he was not a perfect man. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon, the king, used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and in righteousness and in uprightness in heart toward you. And you have kept for him the great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place 
of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know what, how to go out or how to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for the multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may, might discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this great people of yours. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked him this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies to be killed, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I will now do according to your asking. I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before and none like you will rise up after. I give you what also... You have not asked for, for riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare to you with all of your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David has, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon awoke and realized it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered right away burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Now, I don't know what you call that in your house, but in the outlaw house, we say that's good stuff. <laughs> I mean, right away, he's had a dream. He's had a conversation with God. God's made a promise to him. And before he has realized one iota of it as being true, before he has done anything with splitting a baby in two that you guys might have heard about, he thanks the Lord, and he parties with his servants. He brings his community in to celebrate with him the promise that the Lord has given him. Obviously, later on, Solomon wrote the Proverbs. Two weeks ago, Billy shared with us from, from uh, Proverbs 1 some of the reasons why Solomon wrote the Proverbs. He's, he communicated with us in, in, from verses 1 through 7 uh, so that we might and others might know wisdom, so that we might understand instruction. We can deal with others wisely. Here's one for me. Make the simple more prudent. And pass on knowledge and discretion to our youth. Go stu students. Uh, view God with such an awe. This is the summary. To view God with such awe that everything else will make sense. In Proverbs 1, Solomon begins addressing a target audience of his son. As you look through the beginnings of Proverbs, 17 times he starts a teaching. He starts a lesson saying, my son or my sons. He also uses a lot of imagery. He's very poetic, just like his father David. He borrows some from some of the themes that David used. He, he talks about things like ways and paths, sort of like, David does in Psalm 23, 3, when he says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
He, he talks about steadfast love and faithfulness, as does his father in, in Psalm 5710. Your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And one of my favorite is he continues with this theme of the heart. He says, as David does, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Proverbs 3 follows this pattern of teaching. It's the fourth of the 17 lessons targeted at kids, and it's very poetic. It's written in couplets with do and don't instructions. There are principles for, for various imagery of what we call the good life, the path, the way. It's very simple, but very deep. And we know from Scripture that it is the inspired Word of God and certainly profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, whole, equipped for every good work. Now that we have observed that context... Let's dive into the verse and some examples of that. The first phrase, trust in the Lord with all your heart. I can't help but think of anybody but Abraham right off the gate. When I think of many examples from the Bible who seem to me to trust the Lord with all his heart, I think of Abraham. You know, wisdom is oftentimes defined in the moment, but credited over a lifetime. Our brain each day is processing over 35,000 decisions. I got that from the internet. We have a preference in how we go about making these decisions. We uh, are, some of them are innate, some of them learned. Some come from personal experiences, some come from exposure, certainly from the culture. But our primary influencers tend to be what develops as our value system, our beliefs, our faith. We are now living in the church area, uh, this time since Jesus' ascension into heaven and the coming back. We who are Christ followers have three primary resources that we can tap into for wisdom. One is God's word like we're doing today. I have stored up your word in my heart, said Dave, uh, says uh, uh, Solomon, uh, that I might not sin against you. That was David in Psalm uh, 119. Proverbs 3, 1 through 2 says, My Torah and my commands, where Solomon is taking God's word and saying, It's mine. I own it. I believe it. And I want to pass that on. We have in the church era... The Holy Spirit, that's what we've been studying uh, over the summer in City Students. The, the Holy Spirit living in us is our cheat code. We can pray like none other because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And we have church. We have disciples making disciples. We have been equipped as a community of believers in a local church context to facilitate a movement of disciples who makes disciples. Abraham walked with God. God called him a friend. He made a covenant with him. God's covenant with Abraham did not require any righteousness on his part. 
just obedience. Neither does his relationship with you and I. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and I will dishonor those those that dishonor you I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth, all families of the earth shall be blessed. The Hebrew word used in Proverbs 3, 1 for trust is baltach, B-A-T-A-C-H. It means to trust. Makes sense. But it's also used elsewhere in, in the Bible, and, and I think that in digging into these other uses, we can understand a little bit better about what is being revealed here as trusting. Baltac is also to be bold in the Lord, is to be confident in the Lord, hopeful in the Lord, to be secure in the Lord, to be sure in the Lord. We, like Abraham, are to trust the Lord with our whole heart, to be faithful. And just as it was credited to Abraham as righteousness, it will be credited to us as righteousness as well. That next phrase in Proverbs uh, 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. I've got two examples for this. Uh, one came to me about three weeks ago when uh, after uh, Margaret and I were watching uh, one of these mini-series on, uh, um, it was Disney Plus. Uh, I think it was a National Geographic version of Disney Plus or something like that. But it was called A Small Light. I don't know if you have seen that or not, but I highly recommend it. It's a great, great uh, miniseries um, to see. Based on a true story of Anne Frank uh, and her family, she was a teenage girl, and over a period of time leading up into the German occupation of the Netherlands and the, and the Jews, uh, and also it goes into the time period where they experienced the Shoah, the Holocaust. It, it's an incredible story. Uh, Anne Frank kept a journey during her two years of hiding with her family and the other three that were cramped up into this attic space where her father had actually converted, expecting to have to be able to hide at some point in time from the Germans. The movie is told from a, a viewpoint of, of somebody who worked for her family uh, her father, Anne Frank's father, uh, a woman by the name of Meep Gies, quite, quite the name. She worked for Anne's father and um, uh, was helping them throughout their hiding. She was involved daily providing food and other essentials. Ultimately, uh, she and her husband, John, became, became active in what was called the Underground Railroad of sorts uh, to try to save as many Jews as possible during this horrible horrible time. Uh, this made me want to go back and reread a book that my brother-in-law, Rygrag, wrote called My Brother's Keeper. It tells the story of 30 different Christians uh, 
who were in a similar situation with Meep, who were faced with their friends and some uh, just the fact that they were people uh, who were being killed on a daily basis, rounded up uh, to go to uh, just, just awful circumstances, many of whom would never survive. And uh, this really challenged me as I was looking through these 30 stories of Christians who reached out and helped and built this Underground Railroad. In that circumstance, would I do the same thing? Would I risk my life for these people down the street, for their kids? Would I hide them? Would I create a, a way if I knew it was going to cost me my life? Cost me my family's life? That's convicting. And I was reminded of Esther. Esther's example begins when she was chosen as the queen of Persia in 479. She was a Jew. Her uncle who raised her, named Mordecai, encouraged her not to reveal that she was a Jew to anyone at the time. The king at this time had some strict rules and expectations with life and death consequences, including regarding who could approach his throne and how they could. As queen, Esther had same, the same requirements as everyone else. And if she were to approach the king, he would decide if he wanted to see her or not. If he would accept her. If not, he would have her killed. If so, then Esther was free to go ahead and meet with him. Esther was one of a large harem, but she was one that the king was very pleased to see and often would extend his scepter to her. During her service as queen, Mordecai would hang out at the, at the edge of the gate of the, of the castle where, uh, where they lived and uh, just in hopes that he would be able to see her and, and, and speak to her on occasions. Um, while he hung out there at the gate, he heard some things going on, some people plotting against the king. And... Uh, he went ahead and told Esther about this. And he, he, he said, uh, if you can, approach the king and share with him this information. And she did. The king investigated it and found that it was, the threat was credible and that had the two conspirators uh, put to death. This endeared the king even more to Esther and now also to Mordecai. However, the king's chief of staff, a Canaanite man named Haman, he was walking through that same street, and let's just say that Mordecai refused to kiss his um, hand. And um, through that, he, he began a plot. Haman began a plot to kill not only Mordecai, but all the Jews, every single one of them throughout the Persian Empire. Mordecai then approached Esther with a request to save the Jews. Mordecai sends word saying, who knows? And this is something, a scripture verse that you and I are probably pretty familiar with. Perhaps you've come to your assignment for such a time as this. Esther's reply to her uncle is recorded in Esther 4, 16 through 17. 
She says right away, go and assemble the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my female servants will also fast the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. What a great example. There's no recorded evidence that she contemplated any other choice. She just went out and did it. But notice part of that story that we don't hear about so much is her call to prayer immediately. Not just your ordinary, everyday prayer, but a call to fasting. And for those of you who have fast, not one of those you know, six hours a day kind of thing, but three full days of fasting. The rest of this story shows how truly wise she was in communicating with her husband, the king, and with Haman, the man who wrote a decree to have all the Jews killed. She knew her life was at stake, and she did not rush or panic. She called her prayer and approached the king in a way that made him feel honored and adored. Right away, the king, uh, uh, she simply asked that he and Haman come back for a few days later to come to a feast. In the meantime, God was working throughout the king's mind a desire to honor Mordecai for his sharing the plot to assassinate him. At the same time, Haman was plotting to kill Mordecai and all the Jews. When Esther and Haman returned for the feast, the king again offered her anything up to half of his kingdom. She then revealed that she was a Jew and Mordecai was her father figure and that Haman's decree to kill all the Jews would include she and her whole family. Her plan worked and the Jews were saved through her actions. Esther prayed she sought God's will earnestly through fasting and trusted the Lord with all her heart, not leaning on her own understanding. In the New Testament, one of my favorite characters, somebody that I feel like I can relate to most of the time, is a, is a guy named Peter. You know, Peter, we know his story pretty well. He was a fisherman. He was one of those that Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He was there. He helped feed the 5,000. He saw the transfigured Jesus. He declared his belief that Jesus was the Messiah before anybody else did. He walked on water at least a step or two, and he also denied Jesus three times. In City Men, several weeks ago, Dan Didiago kind of unpacked a little bit of Scripture involving Peter, and he challenged us, and I want to challenge uh, you guys that same way this morning. In Luke twenty-two fifty-four, 54, uh, was shortly after um, Jesus was arrested, and it says they seized Jesus and led him away, and Peter followed at a distance. We have Peter here in this moment, a Polaroid shot of him following at a Jesus, at, at a distance. Peter's distance his denial of even knowing Jesus later, none of that surprised God. None of it caught him off guard. Jesus had already changed his name from Simon to Petra the Rock. He had big plans for him, as he does you and I. We can look back in history or look forward in the Bible from the gospel 
of, to Acts, and we see that Peter's response versus how Judas might have responded or did respond, we could not deal with his denial and make choices that forever separated him from God. Peter's ministry tr truly took hold as he had breakfast with a resurrected Jesus. We can make mistakes. We do make mistakes. But we have a God who allows us to bounce back. In City Students, we've been discovering throughout this summer, I mentioned earlier, about the Holy Spirit and how on Pentecost he came to live within the disciples, not for a period of time like he used to do in the Old Testament, but for forever. We have this same Spirit in us that led this man, Peter, from following at a distance to preaching in such a way that 3,000 new followers of Christ would come. Day one. God knows our relationship with him is always a work in progress. We do struggle with our own understanding versus trusting in him. But we have his word. We have his spirit living in us. These do more than fill in our gaps. They have the power to define us, to shape our hearts, to take away a heart of stone and replace it with moldable clay. So we can continue with the verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, uh, back in my day with North American Mission Board, I used to lead training, believe it or not, all across the country. And um, uh, it was called a, a curriculum called Building Powerful Ministry Teams. And so if you're familiar with that type of leadership curriculum, it's all about setting the culture for success in the future. And a large part of that uh, uh, is dependent on such things as vocabulary. And so one of our lessons that we would do every single time as we went across the country is, is we would ask them to define some of the words from uh, using a scale from, the, from zero to 100. And so we would put out words like few, many, some, seldom, most, and all. And believe it or not, when you talk about, and you're probably doing it in your mind right now, zero to 100, all, you're thinking 100, right? Never did we have a class where everybody in the class said 100 for all. We got responses every single time from anything from 51 to 100. And you're like, 51? Well, their mindset was that all meant the majority. You know, others would say 80% because, you know, sometimes my all is 80%. I mean, that's all it is. So we've got to understand that when we talk about all our ways, the Bible is talking about all our ways, 100%. When I think about this, I think about a guy named Caleb. Around 1999, the Lord led me through a study uh, through different people in the, in the Bible that the Lord had identified as having wholly devoted or wholeheartedly followed him. 
Of course you have David, but one of the discoveries I had was the story of Caleb, and I was mesmerized and still am mesmerized with Caleb. At that time, obviously I was so mesmerized with, with the study of Caleb and who he was and what he stood for that I named my, my son, that Margaret and I named our son, our, ended up being our youngest son, uh, Caleb, Caleb Joshua, after, after his story. When we look at his story and we see how God himself talks about him being wholly devoted, one who followed him wholeheartedly, we, we need to understand some things about Caleb at that time and the other spies that went into the land. He went in with 12 spies. He was chosen. He was 40 years old at the time when he was chosen to be a spy. He was already recognized leader of the tribe of Judah. 40 years old means that he spent, at this time you could calculate, he spent 38 years of his life as a slave in Egypt. The last two years of his life, he was making his way with the rest of the Israelites to the promised land. He was present when Israel created the golden calf to worship. He, he, he witnessed the plagues. He walked on dry ground when God parted the waters. He saw Moses' face aglow when he came down from the mountain. He physically saw and probably touched the Ten Commandments that God wrote on stone. He knew the promised land was from a covenant from, with Abraham. He knew that it was to be a land flowing with milk and honey. He saw God made their needs as they met their needs as they escaped Egypt. He ate the manna. He ate the quail. He saw God's faithfulness, how, how he was part of the culture of the Israelites at that time who had been in slavery, marked by 400 years of slavery, in fact. He was a recognized leader. He was chosen to spy out the land. He saw it was fruitful just as he was promised it would be by the Lord. He helped cut the grape clusters so large that they had to be carried by two people on a big, big pole in between them. He also, like the rest of the spies, saw the people who inhabited the land, and he saw that they were grasshoppers in comparison. These descendants of Anak. The fear of these people led to a bad report back to Moses and all the Israelites. Ten came back and said, oh my goodness, there's no way we should go forward. But Caleb stood up in front of everyone and said, let us go and at once and conquer this land, for we will overcome it. Overall, a bad report, so much so that Caleb and Joshua, who also stood with him, uh, they were threatened to be stoned. Caleb lived with the results of this bad report because they turned around. They went back into the desert, as we know, for 40 years. They went wandering. Caleb and Joshua, they watched all their contemporaries die. A whole generation of people that died in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. But two survived. Two led on. This was Caleb and Joshua. And after 40 years, Joshua led the Israelites into, uh, in, in a battle to claim the land. Now, 
when Caleb had scouted out the land and because he spoke up in defense of going ahead and, and conquering the land, uh, he was promised that section of the land that they were investigating. But instead of going immediately and taking it, it what was mine, he could have easily taken his family and gone to Hebron, which was promised to him. But instead, he battled for the next five years so that the rest of Israel could claim that whole promised land. Then and only then did he set his sights on Hebron and the giants that still lived there. At this time, he was 85. Later, we read about after Joshua's death that the Israelites looked for a leader and they came to Caleb, not to be that leader, but to identify the process for naming that leader. And ultimately, Caleb chose his nephew, Othniel, who became the first judge. Like you and I, Caleb look, could look back on his life. He could look back on his life as a slave and his God as his rescuer. His experiences were no different than any of the other ten spies. But Caleb was faced with a choice that defined his life. And in that moment, and for the rest of his life, he acknowledged God. What does it mean to acknowledge God? Words used in other translations of the Bible besides the ESV, which I'm, I'm using here, uh, they use instead of acknowledge, the NLT puts it this way, seek his will in all you do. The Christian standard says, think about him in all your ways. The New International Version says, in all your ways, submit to him. And the Amplified, my favorite, says, to know and acknowledge and recognize him. We can do these. We have an example. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We can acknowledge him in all our ways. In John 14, Jesus responds to Thomas's questions of how we can know the, the way, stating, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The early church throughout the book of Acts was most readily referred to as the way. Acts 9, Paul described the sect that he was perse persecuting as the way. In Acts 19, Luke refers to the crowd following Paul as the way. Jesus called his first disciples with the simple statement, follow me. Simple to say, not necessarily to do. Therefore, as Jesus is the way and the disciples followed him, then this is our model for today as Christ followers. The ultimate way to acknowledge him in all our ways is to follow him. As one of my favorite musicians Rich Mullins used to sing, Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you, from Psalm 63. I will seek you in the morning, and I will learn to walk in your ways, and step by step you lead me, and I will follow you all of my day. We can acknowledge him with every step. Caleb acknowledged him as he continued on until he was 85. The last phrase from verse 6, and verse 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, 
in all your ways acknowledge him, it says, and he will make straight your path. You know, just from a stance of irony, I mean, and, and looking back at the other versions of the Bible here, we can see that uh, making straight your paths is also in the NLT, it says, show you which way to take. And the Christian standard says, he will guide you in the right path. Um, in the amplified version, paths straight and smooth. Well, the irony of this led me to our final example today, uh, Paul. Uh, I kind of I can picture Paul standing there like a George Costanza saying, I'm following Jesus and I've got potholes. My potholes on the pathway of life, though, are nowhere close to Paul's issues. That's why I think this phrase, he may, will make straight your paths, requires a Pauline kind of example for us to, follow, to fully understand his truth. This principle sounds like a promise of the good life. We'd all like to smooth ride down the highway of life. The question is, what is our definition of the good life? Paul's experience in following Jesus on his path required his body to be broken time and time again. Paul was whipped 39 times on three different occasions. He was stoned and dragged out to the city gate because they thought he was dead. He lived with some type of malady, which he called a thorn in the flesh, and it kept tormenting him. He, he was imprisoned for over five years, and ultimately, as you know, he died a martyr's death, beheaded for his faith. But this was the good life for Paul. It requires a paradigm shift for you and I. Paul's good life was that he met Jesus on a road to Damascus and was selected to make disciples of Jews and Gentiles all around the world. His path was indeed straight to Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith. Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 3, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to us, he asked, as he did the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 23, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's will, I mean, for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise with this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. But for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. All things are yours, he says, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Now that's living the good life. So as we look at this scripture, and we look at the examples that we've had, we might come away with some application questions. Like, do I trust God? Do I ball tack God? Do I, am I bold in the Lord? Am I confident in the Lord? 
Am I hopeful in the Lord? Am I secure and sure? Do I do so with all my heart? Are we all in? Are you willing to be ridiculed? Are you willing to put your life on the line because you're all in? Wholly devoted? What's keeping you at a distance if not? Do you look at the giants in your landscape and choose to let your own understanding trump the trust of God? Are you prepared for your such a time as this dilemma? Could you be facing one now? Are you putting distance between you and God? Do your actions and your words, does your life acknowledge God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? What do you boast about? And do you recognize that you are God's temple, the Holy Spirit lives in you, that you are his and he is yours? If your honest answer right now is uh, that that doesn't really describe me, I'm not all in, then I want you to take heart and look back at these six examples because none of them were perfect. Neither is you. Neither are you. He was ready. And responded accordingly. Each of your examples. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready for the good life? Let's start living it. Lord, I pray now that as you've brought us here, it was for a purpose. And that purpose was to come face to face with the fact that you love us, and that we were called according to your purpose, that you live in us through your Holy Spirit. It's humbling to think, Lord, of myself or uh, as a temple where you dwell but it's a fact. Your word says so. Lord, I pray that in everything that we do, we're able to trust in you. Lord, I pray that you continue through your Holy Spirit and through church friends and biblical community, through your word, you continue to draw us away from our prideful view of ourselves, that you continue to keep us in your arms. Lord, we talk about being at a distance with you. Lord, and many of us right now, we're feeling that distance. Lord, we recognize that to be fully yoked with you, it means to be very, very close to you. Lord, show us the way. Provide the avenue. Let your Holy Spirit tell us our next step. Make our paths, Lord, like Paul's, not like some romantic view of how our life ought to be, but one that is truly yours, regardless of what you require or what you ask. Lord, it's your Holy Spirit living in us that makes it happen. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the fact that you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.